0: We are in session 11 of our study of Leviticus, and tonight we're going to explore chapters 21 and 22, which will focus on personal purity. Many scholars feel it's the most important book in the Bible because it's the only book that focuses on holiness, and uh, it's under, it's fundamental to everything else. In, from chapters 11 through 20, we'd been studying the law as it relates to people, but now we're going to come to the laws as it relates to to the personal purity of the priests. You need to remember that it was God's original intention that the entire nation of Israel would be a kingdom of priests. In Exodus chapter 19, the chapter just before the law was given, it says in verses 5 and following, Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine." And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. Unfortunately, their disobedience in that whole matter with the golden calf destroyed any possibility of realization of a perfect and ideal society. You may recall it was only the tribe of Levi that rallied to uh, Moses' defense. It stood with Moses, and that was in uh, Exodus 32, it's recorded. So God selected this one tribe, then, to be priests rather than the whole nation. This idea of a royal priesthood is the same idiom that is used of the church. In the New Testament, it, the view is that every believer is a priest and has access to the throne. That's why I want to do this as a little preamble before we get into Leviticus with the ironic priesthood. You may recall that uh, Peter... In his first letter, chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, he says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. That's where we get the, the uh, legitimacy of using that term of the believers. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, In which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. That's Peter's... Comments in his first letter, second chapter. But furthermore, every believer priest is required, though, to live a holy life. And that's why we want to focus on this chapter for our own personal walk. Um, Now, the only way that's possible is by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Peter continued in chapter 4 of his letter on somewhat the same topic. He said, And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging, as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So in other words, we as believer priests are called to a higher way of life, a higher walk. This is what Paul also emphasizes in Ephesians 4. He says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk, not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, that ye put off concerning the former conversation or conduct uh, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that ye may put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. See, we're saved by grace, But the child of God has also been called to a high place in his life. It's not you don't pay for grace, nothing's expected or it wouldn't be grace. On the other hand, if you love God, you pick up a responsibility to represent Him faithfully, which means several things. It means that you as a believer should also be very careful in accepting an office in the church. If you become an officer in the church, you need to live up to that responsibility. Jesus, our high priest, lived up to his office, as the uh, book of Hebrews emphasizes in chapter 7. For such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins, then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself... For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was that since the law maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. See, Jesus was both the high priest and He was also the sacrifice offered by that high priest, namely Himself. So the law now, as we get into Leviticus, addresses the priests and the high priests. There is a sense then in which, even though this is addressed to the priests under Moses, there there are lessons for all of us because we're called to a priesthood too. Well, Leviticus 21 opens with issues that defile the priesthood, things that he has to uh, abstain from. He has to abstain from certain forms of human kinship and friendship. Leviticus 21, verse 1. The Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say unto them, There shall none be defiled for the dead among his people. Someone that's dead is suffering from the penalty of sin. And uh, priests are not to be contaminated with sin. Therefore, the whole concept of physical contact with the dead brought defilement. So a priest was not to touch a dead body. And uh, going on verse 2, But for his kin that is near unto him, that is, his mother or his father, or for his son or for his daughter or for his brother, and for his sister a virgin that is nigh unto him, which hath no husband, for her may he be defiled. In other words, his immediate blood relatives. He was allowed to touch you know, in a funeral or be involved with, but only of close relatives. All those that are listed here are blood relations and by nature close to the priests. And he must be permitted to express his uh, feelings of sympathy and grief as a priest of God. See, he is supposed to be a type of Jesus, and even Jesus wept over Lazarus, if you recall. He was touched with our infirmities and so on. But in any case, he was not permitted to defile himself for the—that that is the priest for the dead of any others, He could mourn in his heart, but he was denied physical contact with any other dead than the ones that are listed. Verse 4. But he shall not defile himself, being a chief among his people, to profane himself. See, his his office, a priest, his office required... And by the way, see, not all Levites were priests, only the descendants of Aaron. They were the elect group, the select group, if you will. And they were required to have a stricter separation than any common man among the people. See, and the same thing, there's a sense in which that applies to us too. There are places that we as believers cannot go. It's not that that's wrong, it's just that it creates the wrong impression. We don't want to give offense to anyone. We don't want to give occasion for the enemies of God to blaspheme. You and I, if we're believers in Christ, are in a position of special responsibility because all of us as believers, I'm not talking about just pastors here, I'm talking all believers, I usually open when I travel. I often will ask how many people in the audience are in the full-time ministry, and maybe 5 or 10% of the hands will go up. And then I'll say, well, how many of you are saved? And, of course, all the hands will go up. So let me ask that again. How many of you are in the full-time ministry, whether you know it or not? And then they all pick up, and then they understand what I'm saying, all the hands will go up. If you're a believer in Christ, then whether you realize it or not, you're in the full-time ministry. And in, in, in a certain sense, then, some of these things have implications for all of us. And, of course, some of it is uh, typically mosaic. We'll, we'll go through it here. Verse 5. They shall not make baldness upon their head, neither shall they shave off the corner of their beard or make any cuttings in their flesh. Now, what he's referring to here are things that the superstitious pagan heathen nations around them did, and especially when acting in the act of mourning for their dead. And the priest was not to imitate these practices of the pagans around them. And just because everything, everybody's doing it is, is a thin excuse. We should be careful to avoid practices that are associated with pagan worship. That's hard to culture because so many, of our, so many of our traditions and cultures and vocabularies, uh, unknowingly, unwittingly, uh, have you know, occultic or pagan uh, worship roots. But we need to guard against that. We'll discover later that being defiled unwittingly is no excuse. We need to think about that. Verse 6, they shall be holy unto their God and not profane the name of their God for the offerings of the Lord made by fire and the bread of their God they do offer. Therefore, they shall be holy. This phrase, offering the bread of God, uh, is a strange phrase. What it is intending to convey is we are as if we were the cupbearer to the king. If we're offering the bread of God, it's, the intent is to indicate that we are in an office of service that's right at the elbow of God, so to speak. That's what the phrase is intended to convey. So anyway, their mourning here was supposed to be appropriate as if they were cupbearers to the king, in a sense. And their position as priests demanded the dignity and the respect and the restraint as as God's representatives. And one reason we're focusing on this a little bit is there's there's a sense in which that applies to all of us as believers in the church today. And if we look at... um, Titus chapter 1, verse 7. For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers, and so forth. Bishop must be blameless, steward of God, not self-willed. Boy, we all have problems with that. I sure do. Not soon angry. woohoo. And on it goes. Hmm? We all have plenty to pray about here, don't we? Moving on to verse 7. They shall not take a wife. We're talking about priests now, the Mosaic priests. They shall not take a wife that is a whore or profane, neither shall they take a woman put away from her husband, for he is holy unto his God. Thou shalt sanctify him, therefore, for he offereth the bread of thy God. He shall be holy unto thee, for I, the Lord, which sanctify you, am holy. See, even in his personal and private life, he is to reveal the holiness of God. The priest is intended to be a type of Christ. And also the body of believers, which is called the bride of Christ, uh, is to be cleansed before she's presented uh, to him without spot or wrinkle. That's all quotes from Ephesians 5, you may recall. 5 verses 26, 27, and so on. A priest was not supposed to take a woman that was put away from her husband. See, a woman could be divorced, and there were circumstances in which she could be, a man could marry her, but not a priest. A priest had to hold himself one level up, in a sense. Verse 9, And the daughter of any priest, if she profane herself by playing the whore, she profaneth her father, and she shall be burnt with fire. Wow. Not just stoned, This is heavy stuff. Why? Why so extreme? Because of the position of the father. What God is trying to do here is establish a distinctiveness uh, of those that are serving him. Now he shifts to the high priest. Verses 10, we'll take the next three verses, 10, 11, 12. He that is the high priest among his brethren, upon whose head the anointing oil was poured and that is consecrated to put on the garment, shall not uncover his head nor rend his clothes. Neither shall he go into any dead body, nor defile himself for his father or his mother. Neither shall he go out of the sanctuary, nor profane the sanctuary of God, for the crown of the anointing oil of his God is upon him. I am the Lord. This is the first mention of the high priest. See, and as God's anointed priest, he's in this very special role here, he's to be separated unto the Lord. He wore a crown on his head. It says, holiness unto the Lord. If you visit uh, Jerusalem, you go to the Temple Institute, you can see the one they have ready for the high priest when the temple ordinances are are established again. And it says here, he's not to rend his garments. He was not to be a violent man. Now, you want to contrast this with Annas and Caiaphas in the trial of Christ in Matthew 26, where he he tore his, his garments. In fact, every detail, every detail of that trial was illegal. He was not represented. There was no witnesses for the defense. Uh, he was not allowed, and they're under the law to self-incriminate. Uh, you can go. You can make a list of dozens of details in those six trials. There are three Jewish trials and three Roman trials through that night from Gethsemane into the morning. And uh, but it's interesting when you when you study the Hebrew trials. Every every detail is illegal. It's there's some fascinating studies. We in our briefing packs, of course, we go over that for you, but. Now, it's interesting, the high priest was not to attend the funeral of either his father or his mother. If you were a priest, you could. The high priest, you couldn't, because he was supposed to be totally dedicated to God, totally dedicated to God, and separated because of his anointed position. So the high priest was in a, in, yet in a class apart. Verse 13, And he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman or a profane or a harlot. These shall he not take, but he shall take a virgin of his own people to wife. Neither shall he profane his seed among his people, for I, the Lord, do sanctify him. His wife, too, so he had to measure up. And he was forbidden to marry uh, others that someone in the camp could marry, but he couldn't. Now, there's a interesting list following now of disqual- what will disqualify you from being a priest. And it includes some interesting things. Blindness, lameness, a flat nose. I have no idea what that is or anything. Dwarfism scabs, deformities, blemishes. The concept is there's no compromises uh, to any uh, misguided concept of equality. Well, gee, I didn't get a fair chance. That's got nothing to do with it. There's no yielding of the standards is, is the concept here. Verse 16, The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron, saying, Whosoever he be of thy seed in their generations that hath any blemish, let him not approach to offer the bread of his God. See, he could be a Levite and he could do other things, but he couldn't become a priest if he had some problems here. For whatsoever man he be that hath a blemish, he shall not approach. A blind man, or lame, or he that hath a flat nose, or any anything superfluous, or a man that is broken footed, or broken handed, or crook backed, or a dwarf, or he that hath a blemish in his eye, or be scurvy, or scabbed, or hath his stones broken. No man that hath a blemish of the seed of Aaron, the priest, shall come nigh to offer the offerings of the Lord made by fire. He hath a blemish. He shall not come nigh to offer the bread of his God. Why should this be? Well, if the offerings were to be free of any blemish, then the offerer also need to be free of any blemish. No priest could serve if he had any kind of a blemish. And again, part of this is that he is a type of Christ, and Christ was free of any blemishes. Verse 22, and he shall eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy. There again is that strange phrase, extolling the office. Verse 23, only he shall not go in unto the veil, nor come nigh unto the altar, because he hath a blemish that he profane not my sanctuaries. For I, the Lord, do sanctify them. And Moses told it to Aaron and to his sons and to all the children of Israel. See, although those with the blemish were forbidden to serve, they weren't shut out from the camp. They weren't uh, closed out from uh, the table of the Lord. God provided for them. That wasn't the issue. See, many believers have serious handicaps that may keep them from one particular kind of service, but that doesn't mean there's no other kinds of service available to them. They're still genuine saints of the Lord, and they still have all the rights and privileges of believers in every respect. Well, now we get to Leviticus 22 where we can get defiled through disease or diet and the dead. The Lord speaking to Moses saying, "Speak unto Aaron and to his sons that they separate themselves from the holy things of the children of Israel and that they profane not my holy name in those things which they hallow unto me. I am the Lord." The first point is there was a, to be a separation of the sacred and the secular. And I know I'm guilty in some of my early tapes. I was fond of saying many, many years ago that there's nothing secular before the throne of grace. And what I was trying to get across is that God is interested in every detail in your life. But I, in my enthusiasm of expressing that way, I realized I was technically wrong. Because clearly there are separ- clear separations between things that are holy and things that are not. There is to be a separation of the sacred and the secular. See, Aaron was not allowed to bring things of the tabernacle home with him. They were to be separate. And we're not supposed to treat the things of God as if they're commonplace. And that's something we need to remember in our enterprise. You know, we're, we publish materials. We write. We publish. And it's easy in the, in the pragmatics of a business enterprise to treat it uh, as, as uh, you know, work in process, whatever. And yet uh, we need to recognize that in our case, we're dealing with the things of God. In fact, one of the things that hits us very continually, brings an awareness, is as we discover how God is using our materials. It's astonishing as we travel all over the world. We find, continually run into people we never dreamed that are not just aware of our materials, but hang on them, bathe in them, uh, immerse in them. It's uh, humbling because we were saying to you that God is really using these things. So we ourselves need to be continually on our guard, not to treat anything that we're doing. It's commonplace. And we have these tremendous volunteers that come in and give of themselves, and how precious that is. Verse 3, Say unto them, Whosoever he be of all your seed among your generations that goeth unto holy things, which the children of Israel hallow unto the Lord, having his uncleanness upon him, that soul shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. The priest was not to go about his office in a careless or slipshod manner. He was to be put out of office if he did that. That's basically what that's saying. And that's what Paul captures in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says, for we, if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Got to be on our toes, in other words. Moving on to verse 4 of 22. What man soever of the seed of Aaron is a leper, or hath a running issue, he shall not eat of the holy things until he be clean. And whoso toucheth anything that is unclean by the dead, or a man whose seed goeth from him, or whoso toucheth any creeping thing, whereby he may be made clean, or a man of whom he may take uncleanness, whatsoever uncleanness he hath. The soul which hath touched any such shall be unclean until evening, and shall not eat of the holy things unless he wash his flesh with water. And When the sun is down, he shall be clean, and afterward eat of the holy things because it is his food. Going on to verse 8. That which dieth of itself is torn with beasts, he shall not eat to defile himself therewith. I am the Lord. They shall therefore keep mine ordinance, lest they bear sin for it, and die therefore if they profane it. I, the Lord, do sanctify them. The net of all of this is the priests were to be holy in all the relationships in their homes, in their uh, social contacts, in their business relationships, any way that they touched the world. They had to be uh, very guarded. They were to be examples. They were to walk the talk, as we often say. Verse 10. There shall no stranger eat of any holy thing. A sojourner of the priest or a hired servant shall not eat of any holy thing. See, the sanctity of the tabernacle required the excluding of the stranger. Only the sons of God can worship God. That doesn't mean they can't be in the camp. That doesn't mean they can't be a, a fellowship in many ways, but they can't eat of the holy thing. The priests but the priests were given were, was holy and was not to be shared in that way. Verse 11, But if the priest buy any soul with his money, he shall eat of it. And he that is torn in his house, he shall eat his meat. And if the priest's daughter also be married unto a stranger, she may not eat of an offering of the holy things. But if the priest's daughter be a widow or divorced and have no child and is returned unto her father's house as in her youth, she shall eat of her father's meat, but there shall no stranger eat thereof. See Only those people who belong to the priest, those who are born in his house, they may uh, eat of his meat. If the priest's daughter married a Gentile, she was excluded from access to the holy things. He can be a, uh, uh, a proselyte. It can be a Gentile converted to Judaism and living in the camp. That's fine. But, but, uh, he's excluded from the holy things. And again, if she's widowed or divorced and comes back under the roof of her house, then he, he can then, she then can return to share her father's meat. Verse 14, if a man eat of the holy thing unwittingly, then he shall put the fifth part thereof unto it and shall give it unto the priest with the holy thing. And they shall not profane the holy things of the children of Israel which they offer unto the Lord or suffer them to bear the iniquity of trespass when they eat their holy things. For I, the Lord, do sanctify them. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. If someone unknowingly defiled something or, or put it another way, if he ate of holy things unwittingly, uh, he's guilty and a fine was expected of him. This placed an added responsibility to the priests to guard the tabernacle. You say, gee, a lot of these laws were talked before about the people. That's right, but we're talking here about the priests. It's one notch higher, and also the priests are to enforce this if someone's bringing an offering. Their role was to make sure it met all the requirements of the law. And any indifference or any irreverence is immediately detected by outsiders or, or critics And uh, it it impacts their concept of God. And while we're not under the law and we're not involved with all the details of these ordinances, the spirit of our relationship is very similar. Is that when we show any indifference to the things of God or any irreverence in any way, it will be quickly picked up by by, uh, the outside world and it impacts their view of God. If we're casual about God, that does God discredit. That lowers the estimation of him in their eyes. Very, very, very parallel issues here. Remember uh, what Jesus said in Matthew 18.7, he says, Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. It was predicted in the scripture, Psalm one nine, that uh, Jesus would be betrayed by a friend. So it was inevitable. It was, it, was, it was going to happen. That doesn't excuse Judas. That doesn't make his burden lighter. It must needs be that offences come, Jesus said. But woe unto the man by whom they come. Well, now we have some admonitions for the priests to be uh, discerning with regards to offerings. Verse 17, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and to his sons, And unto all the children of Israel, and say unto them, Whatsoever he be of the house of Israel, or of the strangers in Israel, that will offer his oblation for all his vows, and for all his free will offerings, which they will offer unto the Lord for a burnt offering. Ye shall offer at your own will a male without blemish, of the beeves, or of the sheep, or of the goats. And whatsoever hath a blemish, that shall ye not offer, for it shall not be acceptable for you. So this section uh, contains the rules and regulations for people who are bringing their offering, and they had to be strictly enforced by the priests. And again, no offering with any blemish was uh, permitted because these offerings were intended to point to Christ. Any departure from the best would be a blemish or lower the concept of the the conception of Jesus Christ or the Messiah. Verse 21, And whosoever offer the sacrifice of peace offerings unto the Lord to accomplish his vow, or a freewill offering in beeves or sheep, it shall be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no blemish therein. Blind, broken, maimed, or having a wen, or scurvy, or scabbed, ye shall not offer these unto the Lord, nor make an offering by fire of them upon the altar unto the Lord. Either a bullock or a lamb that hath anything superfluous or lacking in its parts, that mayest thou offer for a freewill offering, but for a vow it shall not be accepted." You shall not offer unto the Lord that which is bruised or crushed or broken or cut. Neither shall you make any offering thereof in your, hand, in your land. Neither from a stranger's hand shall ye offer the bread of your God any of these, because your corruption is in them and blemishes be in them. and They shall not be accepted of for you. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, When a bullock or a sheep or a goat is brought forth, then it shall be seven days under the dam. From the eighth day and henceforth it shall be accepted for an offering made by fire unto the Lord." whether it be by cow or you, or you shall not kill it, and her young both in one day. The natural deformities, could be a very natural thing. It could be a scratch they get in, in, in normal service or something. Uh, cuts, bruises, broken bones, uh, uh, all uh, comprised blemishes. And any of these would re- result in rejection. No stranger was to make an offering. Any animal had to be at least seven days old, seven being symbolic of being complete, mm-hmm. And by the way, it was in all in these points that Israel failed miserably. And that's what Malachi, uh, the, the book of Malachi, opens up with. Verses 6 through 14 hammers away uh, at how Israel didn't do what God asked. And Malachi is, a, is a really goes into all of that. Verse 29, And when ye will offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving unto the Lord, offer it at your own will, on the same day it shall be eaten up. Ye shall have, leave none of it till tomorrow, for I am the Lord. He's talking about a free will offering; it's voluntary. This uh, represented the Father who gave the Son, and the Son who, for the joy that was set before him, uh, endured the cross. We all remember that from from uh, Hebrews twelve. The offering had to be eaten the same day. Strange idea, but the whole, I think the whole thought here was they didn't want to have any, allow any opportunity for the slightest bit of corruption. So it be eaten the same day. Didn't, no leftovers. No cold pizza in this deal. Okay. Verse 31. Therefore shall ye keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. Neither shall ye profane my holy name, but I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. I am the Lord which hallow you that brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. They were to be witnesses, witness for God. What was their motivation then? And Andrew Bonar suggests five reasons from this little passage. Because he says, I am the Lord, that's reason enough. I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. I am the Lord which hallow you. And I am the Lord which brought you out of Egypt. And I am your God. I'm the Lord which hallowed you. See, there is a liberty that we have in Christ, but that liberty is not license. And the holiness and the righteousness of God needs to be zealously maintained in our worship. I am the Lord which brought you out of Egypt. Interesting how that's so... It's obviously very denotative for Israel, but it's also very connotative for all of us because God has saved all of us. He's called all of us out of Egypt. And He saved us by grace... Now, grace does not require a payment, or it wouldn't be grace. But the real question we have to ask ourselves, do we really love him? Here's a holy God who's done so much for us. Do we really love him? Do we really desire to serve him? And if we do, that service brings on some awesome responsibilities. There's a tendency, I think, a tragic tendency in in our Christian community... It sometimes is, uh, goes by the label of cheap grace. We're so, we're so, uh, we so emphasize that God has done it all that we don't really... And we're also so fearful, maybe too fearful, of getting back under legalism that uh, that results in a lack of discipline. Uh, one of the things that uh, still troubles me, I spent 30 years as a corporate executive, in corporate boardrooms, and I happened to be to have been spoiled, not just because I'm in the right place at the right time many, many times, but I had the privilege of trafficking with some very, very people with real integrity. They may not have been Christians, but they had personal integrity. And I got spoiled. And about 10 years, I, was, I went a 30-year career like that. Ten years ago, I, I, I shifted my career to go into what some people would call professional Christianity, t- speaking, teaching, writing full-time. And uh, and I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm excited about what I do. I've never worked harder, never been poorer, never been happier. The Lord has provided abundantly. We 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 uh we have a wonderful life. And and it's rather hectic, but we love it. It's it is, after all, the greatest adventure possible. But the one problem I've had, it's been troubling me for ten years, is the the realization that the that the uh discipline, the integrity, the ethics of the community I find myself in is 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 uh much, much lower than the one I enjoyed in the secular world, it wasn't the secular world wasn't perfect, but I continually uh, ran into people you could trust. Now, where is my bond? Deals were done on the back of an envelope with a handshake and uh, and, and that was binding and it, and, and, th- and it made things happen and in the, in, the, in the Christian world, it's astonishing to me that there's no sanctity of a commitment. That, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a mystery to me. I'm, I'm trying to puzzle it through, and if I can puzzle it through a little bit, I'll probably do a, either a briefing pack or maybe a book on the subject because it's, it's dear to me. The whole idea of integrity within the body, it puzzles me that it's so lacking. And it's, a, and it's a proverb among the secular community. There are many businessmen that get very nervous if they discover you're a Christian because it implies that it's going to be, there's going to be problems. Many Christian executives, uh, don't wear it on their sleeve because they don't want to. They, they don't want to telegraph the kind of sloppiness that can, that uh, uh, typically accompanies uh, so much in our community, and it's uh, it's disturbing. Obviously, these are gross generalizations. Obviously, my experience may not have been typical. I'm reminded that in the secular, in you know, 30 years of 12 public boards, there's only one or two cases where we ever removed a person for breach of fiduciary duty. You know, the, there was an ethic that was operative in that world. And we've had to do it more than three times in just the ten years in our little ministry. Disturbing. Now, we, we, if, if we're saved by grace and we really love God, we want to serve Him. But if we want to serve Him, that implies taking on an office and the responsibility that goes with that office, which includes a sense of separation, a sense of commitment, a sense of denial, things that you could got otherwise, there's nothing wrong with them, you can do, but in that office you can't do. And uh, we need to think that through. People are not reading the Bible today. You know what they're reading? You. They're reading you and me. That's where they get their impressions of God. That's where they get the concept of God. And one of the questions we should ponder a bit is, what are they reading in us what do people read in us I, I had a strange experience at the academy, a little incident that happened in the hallway but I'll never forget it when you're a plebe you double time everywhere you go and also you always go in the outward circumference of the stairwells and so that leads to a situation where you're double timing on the stairwell if you're coming off a stairwell you can easily collide with someone in the hall inadvertently uh, the other thing you had to do, if you're going to formation, your shoes had to be shined so they could count fingers at shoulder height. In other words, they'd be shiny enough so if you held fingers at shoulder height, you could count them in the reflection. That was, that was acceptable shine. Which is a high, a high level of shine. And often if you got scuffed, if you got bumped into somebody, your shoe got scuffed, you had to, you, you'd go to, you go to formation, you had a good chance of being put on report because your shoe would not pass, you know, you, you, you wouldn't have your polished shoes. It's, it's trivial little things. But I, I can remember a strange thing. I was a plebe. I was coming down the stairwell, and as I, as I came down the stairwell, I collided with an upperclassman that was going by. Nothing serious, but he scuffed my shoe. And uh, it didn't bother me. I just, I just went on. And I went on another 10 yards or so, and another upperclassman stopped me. And he was stunned, because he noticed that when my shoe was scuffed, I didn't have a reaction, even, even, even suppressed. I just went on, and uh, he complimented me at that, and I went on. But I, I was what stunned me wasn't the incident. What stunned me was that he was watching that closely. That just the expression on my face is something he picked up, and it was unusual enough that he called me on it. And it startled me in the sense that I realized you're always on parade. You're always on parade. I had another experience. Funny how these just comes in mind. They're not my notes. I just I'm prattling here, I guess. Um, <laughs> I had a bizarre experience uh, with my wife. Uh, I had graduated from the, uh, the Naval Academy. I took my commission in the Air Force, and I was an Air Force officer. I also was dating my wife. Or, uh, correction, uh, we'd already been married by then. We'd already been married by then. But she, she'd she never been to the Naval Academy for a dance, a formal hop and a formal weekend. And so uh, it was a homecoming weekend, so I uh, took her to uh, the Naval Academy and uh, took her. To, There's a prominent hotel there called Carvel Hall, and we stayed there. But midshipmen were not allowed to be in the, above the first floor of that hotel. That was one of the ground rules. Well, I was an officer in the Air Force, but earlier that afternoon, I had gathered my old uniforms from my plebe, who was then a first classman because uh, he was still he uh, he had my old uniforms. I had this kick. I wanted to take her to the dance as a midshipman, not as an Air Force officer. That's a little illegal, but that's okay. We, so I dressed up in my, in my midshipman uniform. But to avoid it being conspicuous, we went down the back way out of Corval Hall. We're on the streets of Annapolis under the, on the brick sidewalks under the streetlights. As I'm walking with Nan and her formal to the dance, another midshipman is coming at me with his date. And he throws me a salute, which panicked me, because you, and then I remember, I recall that there's a tradition that you always salute a dragging classmate. It was a first classman coming, and I was proposing to the first classman. But as he saluted, he called me by name. That panicked me, and I stopped him. Because here he saw me in disguise, in a sense, because I was you know, in a midshipman uniform, not an Air Force uniform. And uh, I asked him, how on earth did you recognize me? says, well, you probably don't remember, but four years ago, <laughs> when I was on duty and he was a plebe, he'd came, he came to some formation in the wrong uniform, and I said, putting him on a report, I let him go and change, and I won't go through all the mechanics, but there was a complex, complicated double jeopardy thing operative, so rather than put him through all that, I just let him march off his extra duty and so forth. That was the only encounter I had with him, and in in, in four years later, he was able to recognize me in disguise under a streetlight in Annapolis. On the, it, it it's astonishing. Little anecdotes, I guess, to realize that people notice, people remember, and in our lives, these are obviously very trivial incidents. But but that's exactly the point. It's interesting how the most trivial incidents can leave an impression that goes on for years, and how much more so when we telegraph an impression of God by our reverence, by our discipline, by our commitment to him. Now, as we go through uh, these chapters in Leviticus, obviously they're, they're details of a culture that, that uh, uh, and, and a requirement that is very distant from the lives you and I lead on the one hand, and yet they're not really, because God is very specific as to how he would be worshiped. He's interested in how we treat him. he describes how he is to be worshipped uh, he he has requirements and uh, if we love him and we respect him and we reverence him, we want to know his buying habits. we want to know what pleases him we want to know um, how he wants things and if we really love him we'll 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 commit ourselves to to a disciplined approach to all the things of God now. I limited our evening to these two chapters for a couple of reasons. One is the next chapter, for next time, I want you to read chapter 23. I didn't want to get into 23 tonight because I want 23 to stand on alone. We're going to take next time, chapter 23. And uh, an ancient uh, rabbinical proverb is that uh, uh, the Jews' catechism is his calendar. Next time, we're going to talk about the Jewish calendar, as it's detailed in Leviticus 23. In Leviticus 23, we're going to discover that there are seven feasts of Moses, or of Israel. Three in the month of Nisan, three in the seventh month, and one in between. And we're going to discover that these things are very specific. We're going to talk about things that most Jewish people are not aware of, out of their own calendar. But the the mysteries and the details and the discoveries that are tucked away in the details of God's calendar, as portrayed in the Torah, in the in a specific not not only but in, but specifically in Leviticus 23, it's going to be a very interesting study. I encourage you between now and next time we get together, the next session, is to read Leviticus 23, and you might just outline the key events that occur in the, in the, in the religious year, you know, the that, that layout, and we'll, we'll go through that. And the reason we're going to go into it is not just because of our study of Leviticus, that would justify it alone, but we also have a clue from Paul. Paul points out that these things are a shadow of things to come. The count, the Jewish calendar is also a prophetic outline of God's plans. And, uh, Paul was a student of, Hillel, of Gamaliel, and Gamaliel was of the school of Hillel, in, and there are two major schools of, of Pharisaical interpretation. And uh, the school of Hillel emphasized that prophecy is pattern, not just prediction. And we're going to discover in, uh, how Paul uh, uses that. You know, when Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 10.4, he speaks of the rock in the, that, in the wilderness, that where the water came, there was two of those, that, that it speaks of Christ. And he's not. He doesn't mean that Christ is literally the rock in, the, in, a, in, a, in a physiological sense. Uh, he's talking about. He's using. He's speaking of it idiomatically. Uh, but the pattern there is profound. And when Matthew talks about uh, Joseph and Mary taking Jesus down to Egypt to get him away from Herod, who was killing the babies in Bethlehem, and then finally, when Herod dies, through a dream, uh, Joseph is t- told it's safe now to, to go back home and they do but when matthew records that he throws in a little tidbit he says uh, this is fulfilling what uh, what hosea said out of egypt i have called my son matthew's quoting from hosea 12 verse 1 and yet um, when you look at hosea chapter 12 no way is that passage messianic it's about the nation israel out of israel i have called my son well how on earth can matthew you, you know justify quoting that as the fulfillment of the messiah because it sets a pattern it's a pattern, and, and the pattern is clear, and the pattern is messianic. And that, that's one of the reasons I smile when I see this, uh, the t- this typical seminary emphasis that you always interpret verses in context. Gee, Matthew didn't. There are, the, the ultimate context is the Word of God as a whole. On the one hand, you, you want it, with doctrine, you want to be careful on context, but on the other hand, you want to be sensitive to the, the, to patterns because the patterns reveal God's plan. And we're going to see that in spades next time with Leviticus 23. So on the one hand, our lesson tonight is a little shorter than normal. On the other hand, I didn't want to get into Leviticus 23 part way. I want to make it a solid freestanding thing. And so with that, uh, let's have a closing word of prayer. Well, Father, we thank you that you have called us to be a royal priesthood. But we also thank you, Father, that that priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek and not after Aaron. And yet, Father, as we behold your word, as we go through the Torah and we understand the specificity that you have put there as to how you should be worshipped and the, the, the need to separate the things of God from the things that are profane, As we behold that, Father, we would ask that you would, through your Holy Spirit, give us discernment. Help us to take inventory of our own lives. And help us, Father, to take those things which are worship, those things which are sacred, and protect them, separate them, extol them, and make them without blemish. Help us, Father, to... Rearrange our priorities. Help us, Father, to be more effective priests, more effective examples. Help us, Father, to realize that every detail in our lives is on parade. Every detail of our lives is a witness. Help us, Father, to make that witness one that would please you. Help us, Father, that we might be more fruitful stewards And, O Father, we know that we grieve you in more ways than we can number. O Father, we repent of it. We do seek your face. We do seek to understand so that we might grow in grace and in the knowledge of your Son. And that we might be more responsive to your will in our lives. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer as we commit ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our our Lord and Savior, our high priest indeed. Amen.